Hello, welcome to the first edition of Let's Talk Cancer by the Union for International Cancer Control. My name is Kerry Adams. I'm the CEO of the UICC based here in Geneva, which is lovely and sunny today. Um, we hope that you'll join us on topics that are really relevant to the cancer community over the coming weeks and months. But today we're talking about something which is critical, important in the news every moment you turn on the TV or listen to the radio. And that's about how do we address the challenges caused by conflict zones and particularly about cancer patients and those who serve them who want to treat them. So what happens when a conflict takes place and refugees flee a country? What are the implications on health? Today, I talked to Richard Sullivan, Professor of Cancer and Global Health at King's College London. Used to be on the UIC board for a couple of years, but as a UIC friend for a long, long time, and no doubt will be in the future. So Richard, it's an absolute delight always to introduce you. Tell us about how you got involved and uh, what your experiences have been. Thanks, Carrie. Wonderful to join you. Um, I guess after I qualified for medicine, I always had a very strong trophism for looking to work in humanitarian settings. Um, and certainly my early career in medicine, I worked in numerous countries in some really quite challenging conflict-related situations. Um, but at the same time, I was also sort of running a sort of slightly unusual parallel career in the British military where I was, you know, working in, in a particular unit that had a speciality in health security and I got very interested in how the interface between health security, clinical practice, humanitarianism and, and disease generally went together. And over the 1990s I worked on that and also with various humanitarian organisations with deployments um, into the during the Rwandan genocide, both into Rwanda into the into the eastern part of Congo. And then sadly of course all of those conflicts were coterminous with the rise of the Balkan conflicts um, and spent a substantial amount of time again being deployed uh, overseas working either in a humanitarian clinical setting or working within the policy area of health security. Um, obviously as your career develops as you get older I kind of spent more and more time specializing in cancer and, and, and my career naturally took me back to the UK and pathway into Cancer Research UK as the clinical director there and, and through that and out the other side in the late 2000s um, I became more and more acutely aware that cancer wasn't just a big problem for high-income wealthy countries that this was a, an affliction that dominated low and middle-income countries and even worse there was the vulnerable of the vulnerable and by that I mean men women and children in conflict situations who were afflicted by cancer or dying of cancer or in the palliative situation. And, and that took me into a, a very different direction, which eventually led me to the doors of King's College London, um, which gave me the opportunity to kind of put these two twin passions together, which was global cancer from the Global Oncology Group, the Institute of Cancer Policy, and also the Conflict and Health Research Group, because King's College London has probably one of the biggest academic and also operational groups in the world dedicated to conflict, security and development. But there must be some common challenges where you think we really could learn from one conflict to another conflict to another conflict. And we there are certain things that have to be put in place and quickly in order to you know address the challenges that cancer patients face when they are forced to move from one part of a country or one out of a country to another. What are the things that you think we can learn from the past which potentially could be applied today with the Ukraine challenges? 
Well, I think there's a number of things. I think the first thing is is context matters. Um, there's always been a bit of a tendency to um, try and drive, you know, pure universals, and that's just not the case. I think when when you're thinking about conflict, the first thing you have to understand is what is the nature of the population before the conflict, um, and it makes a big difference. Uh, the contemporary conflicts we're dealing with now in the Ukraine, in Syria of countries and populations that are fully transitioned, and by that I mean very high levels of non-communicable diseases. That's very different from the 1990s when we were dealing with conflicts in sub-Saharan Africa for populations whose average life expectancy, even pre-conflict, was mid-30s, late-40s, and you've got to remember this was the era of, of HIV-AIDS, which of course was decimating sub-Saharan Africa at the time. So context is everything because that really depends on what you're going to see in terms of the of the cancer palliative care burden spectrum. Um, the other thing we learn very quickly is that there's a big difference between being refugees and IDPs. And that, well, by an IDP, we mean an internally displaced person who stays within the boundaries of their country versus a refugee who moves across the border. And not all refugees are equal. Um, refugees under the protection of the UNHCR, which is the UN Refugee Agency, um, enjoy a special status and protection, but many refugees are what we consider to be sans papier. They essentially move across borders, they have no formal protection, low legal status. They are the, probably the most vulnerable and the weakest populations and really need very specific consideration. And we learnt, of course, that within conflict you get, you get these, these new therapeutic geographies emerging. When we think about cancer care, we're thinking in the West very much about cancer care within the boundaries of individual countries. That is not the reality when you're dealing with conflict zones, and I'd argue that's not the reality for low and middle income countries generally, because people tend to move a lot across national borders, or they move vast distances within their own countries. I mean, you think about India, patients will move thousands of kilometers to access other cancer centers. You take a conflict in, say, Pakistan, Afghanistan, for example, and this is work we did with Asim Yosef in Pakistan, you will see cancer patients in Afghanistan moving thousands of kilometers to move across the border into Pakistan to access cancer care. So these are absolutely unique therapeutic geographies, and, it, and it's important not just because of the dynamics of the clinical care and the delays in diagnosis and the delays in treatment, but also the dynamics of what we consider to be the political economy of cancer. In other words, who pays for this? Who's really responsible for those patients and those groups? It's a kind of higher order political and policy issue. Um, the other thing we discovered is, and this is again predates Ukraine and speaks to your point about how it influences our thinking around Ukraine, is the impact on host countries is really, really crucial. There's often, obviously, and, and you know, the reality is people often focus, focus simply on the conflict population and where the conflict's happening. But as refugees move across into other host countries, they have profound impacts on the cancer care and the general health care of the countries they're moving into. Um, in an ideal world, they move into host countries where there is a vast amount of capacity and goodwill. Um, that is not the reality. Refugees from Syria moving into Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, whether you're a Venezuelan refugee, moving into bordering countries in Latin America, you're moving into countries which often do not have the capacity and capability for cancer care to deal with their own domestic populations. So you get this real challenge of crowding out occurring where 
marginalized and displaced populations, endogenous populations and host countries become even more marginalized because of the impact of refugees. And then on top of that, there's a big issue with fairness. And let me explain what I mean by this. A refugee will come in under UNHCR, they may receive you know, excellent cancer care and it's free cancer care, but there's an equivalent man or woman or child who is a citizen of that country who will not receive free treatment from their country because there is not universal health coverage for cancer. So then you immediately enter this really difficult political dimension. And that's something I think we, we learned very early on from, from the Syrian crisis in the Middle East, that you, you, this, is, this becomes rapidly political and sentiment, positive sentiment, can rapidly turn negative against refugees from no fault of their own. So what we're having to learn here is it's not just a matter of focusing on the care of refugee populations, it's also the care of the populations who are hosting them and receiving them. Um, and I, and I, I'll be honest with you, I think we're still learning these lessons. I am not sure the agencies at the highest level, and I speak here to the United Nations, etc., have quite wrapped their head around how to do this. Um, the other issue, of course, comes around the cost of cancer care. Um, cancer is still seen in many countries as a, as a luxury add-on for refugees of, of conflict and not, a, not an integrated necessity. But, so those, but those, I think, are the general lessons I think we've kind of learned about migration, therapeutic geographies, impact on host countries. Richard, you prompted me um, to remember a time when I was in Jordan with a good friend of ours, Princess Dina Mered, who of course used to be the president of UICC, and, and she, we had a lunch, I think it was, with the, the Minister of Health. And it's about the time the Syrian refugees were, you know, serious numbers were coming into Jordan. And the Minister of Health sort of shocked me by saying that his country had run out of antibiotics for the whole population within two months, and he had no budget for any more. And that was just basic antibiotics. And, and, and you know, that sort of brought to life to me the challenges of the receiving country and the goodwill of the Jordan people. As you know, they are fantastically welcoming, lovely people. They wanted to help. But the, the compromise was it was undermining the health system of the Jordanians themselves. So, you know, I'm sure you saw that when, you, when you've been there. Indeed. And, and I guess one of my disappointments was that the international aid community has not learned at the pace it really should have done. I mean, a lot of people were doing a lot of excellent work. Um, friends and colleagues of, of ours, Carrie, Tessa Kutluk, Omar Shamir and Asim Mansour from King of Saint Cancer were doing amazing work looking at what the true costs of care were for refugee populations. And we had that sort of data, but it wasn't being translated into the sort of um, bilateral funding that was necessary in order to support these patients. So there was a what I think it illuminated was a disconnect between a, a refugee system stuck in the past, focused still on reproductive health, infectious disease, child and maternal mortality, and the new reality of conflict zones, which are urban, transition societies, health literate populations, and much more complex NCD needs. Richard, moving on to the, the challenges that we have in Ukraine and the surrounding countries today, we've heard about you know, cancer treatment centres being overrun already. Um, what's your take on the situation today? One of the things about conflicts is the kinetics of conflicts can be incredibly rapid. Don't be wrong, around the world there are vast numbers of frozen conflicts, Nagorno-Karabakh, Gaza, etc. 
but then you have conflicts which are super kinetic and, and, and the dynamics change rapidly. So as it stands at the moment, Ukraine in and of itself had pretty good age standardized mortality rates prior to the war. Um, in other words, you know, of course there were issues, there were deficits in universal health coverage, but nevertheless, there were numerous cancer centers, we think anywhere between about 30 and 42, if you include the private sector, cancer centers spread amongst the different oblasts across the Ukraine. Sorry, and I should mention an oblast is like a district. So that was the reality before the war. And what you've seen is obviously rapid destruction of medical infrastructure in the north, in the east, and in the south. And so we're seeing, and, and, and again, the intelligence is relatively sketchy at the moment of what is still functioning in those regions. But you're seeing a huge, huge number of internally displaced people who are moving essentially westward, even beyond Kiev, into the last remaining cancer centers that are still operating in the west of Ukraine, around Lviv. Um, we know that many men who had, were actively being treated for cancer but nevertheless were ambulatory have already joined the military. So they are out of the system in the front line. We know a lot of the women um, and children have been, who have cancer are being moved out of the country as much as possible or being moved into the West. Um, children with cancer, there's been amazing work by St. Jude's and the World Child um, and, and the, the WHO to organize their disbursement around Europe through the very sophisticated network that Carrie, you and others know intimately about that is involved with childhood cancer. So I want to keep that to one side. And then the situation then for, for men and women with hematological and solid cancers is much more complicated. There's no doubt that the centers in the West are still going in the Ukraine at the moment. They are suffering now from stockouts and shortages, unsurprisingly. Um, some of the radiotherapy equipment is continuing to function but many of the radiotherapy machines, um, particularly the older ones like the iridium and the cobalt machines, have stopped functioning in the north, the east, and the south. Um, what we're seeing now, of course, is as of today, there are 3.6 million refugees that have crossed the border. And they've crossed the border into, into their first primary countries being Poland, Slovenia, um, Slovakia, sorry, uh, Moldova, uh, Romania, and Hungary. To give you some idea of the of the numbers here, because you know two million moving into Poland doesn't really mean anything, but what that is is a five well, between five and eight percent increase in the population of Poland in under a month. So just want to let that sink in a minute, and that is the equivalent increase we're seeing in the other countries. But and this is really important here is a lot of patients and a lot of generally the refugees are moving on to other countries. It's a very, very complex ecosystem. People are going where family and friends are, um, where, they, where they have other sort of social bonds. So that there's a really, really strong dynamic of people moving. In terms of cancer patients, they're essentially being referred either through doctor-to-doctor -doctor peer network. So a Ukrainian doctor ringing up a friend in one of the Polish centers or Romania and saying, I need to get my patient to you as soon as possible. The second one is friends and family, just moving them to a center um, wherever they're living outside. Then there is the, the amazing work of, the, of a lot of patient organizations who are doing like the lymphoma network, who are doing some incredible matching work to get patients out and looked after in a major center. And then the last group is what I would call the walk-ins. They are refugees who've come across, 
They've been given a leaflet in Ukraine saying, "Do you have you been diagnosed with cancer? If you have, please tell us. Um, and they're the walk-ins in the sense that people are having to deal with now. Now, the challenges there are numerous. Um, to give you one idea, many patients are turning up without any notes and who barely know how they've been treated. And that's a really big clinical challenge. Um, it's not to say not all of them. You know, we've, we've seen some amazing innovations. For instance, after the end, the lymphoma networks are bringing out Excel spreadsheets with basic data on. But we've got many patients at the moment who are coming in who have to be literally either worked up from the start again or for whom we're really not sure where they are in their journey. Um, we're also dealing with the issue that even some of the countries like Moldova, this afternoon we were talking to the Moldovans, they have a relatively weak cancer care system there. It, it burns hot at the best of time. They don't have capacity for their domestic population. And the 94 or so patients they've received from Ukraine at the moment is almost too much. Now, there are referral networks occurring in terms of moving patients from Moldova to Austria. But unsurprisingly, a lot of Ukrainian patients don't want to go. And they don't want to go because they have family and friends in Moldova because it's close to the border. So there's a real interesting tension at the moment going on with the triaging of patients, the capacity of centres, and then the wishes of the patients and the families themselves, I think, has to be dealt with. But the, the situation is very fluid at the moment. That I can tell you. Yeah, Richard, I agree. And um, obviously UICC is, is, is trying to be involved as much as it can. We've started a solidarity fund, which a lot of organisations are contributing to. And at some point, we can make that money available to those who need it. But in the meantime, I'm conscious that many European organisations, as you just described, are stepping up to the plate and they are providing as much support as they can do. It, is this something which you, you've seen before in other in other in other conflict areas or is it is it quite unique because it is you know in in europe a pre, you know pretty much a developed area and uh, people are prepared to you know to come together like they've not done before i've not witnessed this before for other other conflict zones well interesting enough and it's not really talked about much the middle east you know we had a lot of patient organizations that stepped up to the plate the king hussein foundation for example um, in turkey there were a number of charitable organizations in konya and gaziantep particularly for women cancers and, and for vulnerable women with cancer. And of course in Lebanon, which has no socialised healthcare system at all and everybody's at the mercy of the private sector, philanthropy and patient organisations played a major, major role in protecting Syrian patients diagnosed with cancer from catastrophic expenditure and helping them navigate their way through. It's just the narrative often about these groups is relatively quiet. I will say though, the volume of the patient organization and, and and networks in Europe is obviously a log order greater than we've seen everywhere else. And as you rightly said, we, you know, this is these are mature countries with mature organizations which cut across advocacy, um, care, major transnational research networks, all who've come together. And I include as well, you know, the pharmaceutical industries come to the table offering help. There are a lot, and that's fantastic. Um, you can have something, something sometimes they'll have something called the poverty of riches, which is there's so many people piling in, 
it's very difficult sometimes then to con coordinate things in a way, in a light touch way that achieves the best outcomes. I totally agree with that, Richard. I think you know, one of the things that we have to do is listen to people like yourself with the expertise and knowledge and those who know the region as well to be guided on how the support should actually flow into the region at what time and for what. So thank you very much, Richard. I, I do hope we're going to see you at the World Cancer Congress because I believe you have a session that's been, it's been accepted on this particular subject. But let me just say thank you very much. The World Health Organization, ECHO, Mike Morrissey, ASCO, all these patients, all these other groups I've mentioned, they are there doing the heavy lifting day in, day out. Thank you to UICC as well for the financial support. This makes a massive, massive difference. And I've, I've been incredibly impressed in that sense. I think people have learned from the past. I've been incredibly impressed with the solidarity and the focus. So just to, you know, I'm happy to be a spokesperson today, but people listening, thanks and credit goes to those individuals and also to the clinicians on the front line. Well, Richard, I, I think we all agree. And at the end of the day, we don't want anyone to die of cancer unnecessarily if we can get the treatment and support and help to them that we know we've got within the region. So let's see what we can do. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Cancer. If you'd like to hear more about Richard, as I said, come to the World Cancer Congress on the 18th to 20th of October here in Geneva and talk through his experiences going back many, many years. Um, and if you want to know more about UICC, come to uic.org and follow us on social media. And we'll see you again soon. Thank you very much.